It ain't that simple, mate. Hello and welcome to It Ain't That Simple, mate, the Bright Hope World podcast. You're here with Fraser Scott and Kevin Honoré. Hi, Kev. G'day, Fraser. How are you, man? I'm very well. Now, last week we, uh, or last time we talked about the five worst ways to address poverty. And given that this is all about poverty and, uh, and missions and, and that's what we're doing, this time it's it's time for us to take a positive spin on these things and talk about the five best ways to address poverty. This is this is pretty important. This is where we start to maybe give a little, uh, little pointed advice, a little feedback from the field. Uh, and and give a little direction on what we think are the the things that are working really well at, at the moment. But it's probably important, is it not, Kev, for us to, to give a bit of a disclaimer here because we have said, hey, look, don't be imposing external solutions. One size does not fit all. So this is, this is uh, I suppose, given with the disclaimer that uh, it may not work in every situation, probably won't. And it is critically important that whatever solutions are deployed are led by the people on the ground. Isn't mm. that right? Yeah, that's 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 totally it. And uh, and even you know you, you can you can use a term like micro loans or something. That, you know, there's there's many don't different give it ways. Away, man. Don't, there's don't. many different ways that they can be delivered. Oh, oh. yeah, <laughs> you've given away number one. Oh, really? All right. Well, that, that was your that, intro. That, that's anticlimactic now. So <laughs> let's, let's just charge into it. Uh, nonetheless, the. Uh, the the first one, and, and these are in no particular order again, but the first and the five best ways to address poverty that we're seeing uh, around the world right now in the communities in which we work. Number one, microloans and table banking. Now, people may have heard of microloans and microfinance. Let, let's start at the end. What's table banking? What's that about? What, what, what's good about it? Yeah, well, table banking is something we've kind of discovered in Kenya, and I think it's a concept that was largely developed there um, and it's we're so impressed with it that, that, that we kind of take on a, a girl from time to time there to go and teach people how to how to do this in fact you know we were supposed to be doing that in in, in Uganda this year our team and uh, and because of COVID we had to cancel it all but which is a bit disappointing but but table banking basically means uh, small groups of uh, of people getting together uh, putting some of their own money onto the table, uh, and then coming up, learning how to to set up an organisation, a structure, and you know have the treasurer and the you know, you know all that kind of stuff. So they uh, they they get some shape around around the money they put on the table. Then they they learn how to uh, put together a small business proposal, and and then they lend the money out, and and so then they start repaying, and 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 the money starts to grow exponentially. So uh, every, I, I guess the the term comes from the fact that everyone gathers around. They they have a little bit of money. They gather gather around. They put the money on the table, and then someone from that group, if I understand correctly, will will take all that money away and use it and pay interest on it. And in the meantime, more money is being put. So the, it, the money is always out. It's in always distribution. out. It's just never never in a bank account or anything like that. It's an informal kind of kind of process and uh, the good thing about it and 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 you know there's, there's a lot of misunderstanding around around finance in, in parts of Africa you know people say well you know it's you know there's not enough money in Africa people aren't earning enough and all, all that kind of stuff well actually p- people in Africa do earn you know capable of making money quite good money one of the issues around that is that they need a little bit of discipline often around how to spend and use their money and so 
I hope I'm not sounding paternalistic in that, but it's, that's that's a general kind of kind of thing. So how, how do you? Now, th- th- this helps them put some shape and discipline around the use of the money that they're making, as well as making it. Um, and so, like, if they when they come to the to the table, uh, if they're late, they have to pay a fine, <laughs> and that goes into the pool. Right, pretty, um, pretty tightly controlled. If their phone rings while they're there, oh, they got to pay another fine, and that money goes on the table. So it's it, it's 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 bringing discipline around the. The making of money and then the the use and management of money and 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 those two things need to go hand in hand because uh, in a sense it doesn't matter you make a million bucks if you're gonna if you're gonna waste it all then you don't have a million bucks left at the end of the day so it's all of that you know it's 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 like that and so and so the the examples that we've seen you know quite quickly within nine months can transform that group of people in terms of, you know economically. Um, and in a number of cases, we've been involved. Don't, you know, to set these up doesn't require external funds, so that's a, a really big part of it. But we will then sometimes boost those funds so that they can, um, you know, then come back and grow their businesses um, to another scale if if, if that's required. Um, but we we love table banking. It's it's a great it's a great way of of helping people get out of poverty because you see as we said in one of the other podcasts it's it's impossible to lend to the poorest of the poor because they have no shape around their their spending or control over what they what, what you know what they need to spend but when it's their money and they have to work hard to put that dollar on the table that week it changes the dynamics of of, of the whole thing so you, you can quite quickly uh, shift a person from being the poorest of the poor to being one of those people who you know are working quite hard maybe not making enough but they, they, you start they, they can they're, start they're from that first level of poor up to the to next the... level of poor and so they can start their journey out um microfinance uh, broadly i mean you know we, we referenced this in the last podcast that this was hugely popular for a while and and you know there are some stories of microfinance banks in Africa, you know, taking people's livestock and property and mm-hmm. and all the rest. I mean, h- how do you do this and do it well so that it, it is transformative? I mean, at the end of the day, it comes back to what's the purpose of the micro micro you know fund that you, that's being set up. Uh, who, who's in charge of it and, and what are why are they doing it? Uh, because, as you say, there's. Um, yeah, a lot of examples of of people joining a microfinance bank in their community. Uh, six months later, they've lost all their all their equity. Their bike's gone. Their house might even be gone because they couldn't make a few payments. And bang, it's it's all been taken off them. Um, and and those types uh, are quite prevalent. And in many cases, in, in many countries in Africa, you know, the government has stepped in to to stop that kind of thing happening. Uh, so you've got to look at what's the you know what's the purpose of of the thing in the first place and uh, the ones that are, are most successful are, are the ones that are set up for the benefit of those that join the that yeah. join the project and they those people own the project uh, they have a, a vested interest in it succeeding um, and it builds community and becomes a great discipleship tool for people because you know one one of the things that um, churches don't talk about in many places is 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 money they'll talk about um, how to get rich but um, you know to, to talk about how how finances work and and 
and, and when there is finance, it's, it's really interesting. Jesus talked more about money than he talked about heaven or hell, you know. Um, and and he was in a poor economy, a, a peasant kind of economy, and and the whole you know issue of finance and and eking out a living and and using money wisely was an important part of 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 what he it's real life. It's real life. It's I mean, it's a huge percentage of real life in every culture. Um, and the church doesn't talk well about money. But when you can set up something like this, it gives the church a real opportunity to to engage its people. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the, the programs I've seen, you know, donors and those investing in them love them because, you know, your money goes in, it's recycled and, and you know, from a 5,000 US dollar seed fund for a decent sized microloans program, you know, that could go around, you know, a hundred times and, and it builds over time as, you know, people pay interest into their own program. I think that's a, that's a real winner with it. I think the other thing is that, that collective accountability that, that loan programs, you know, the ones that we do typically have, where the group sort of comes around each other because, yeah. you know, they are collectively responsible for those finances. Yeah. That drives community and, oh, and, yeah. and power with the gospel. That's a, that's a powerful tool. Yeah, and, and they're not going to let somebody in that they don't trust. So there's, there's the self-regulation going on or peer regulation going on. They vouch for for each other. So if, if, if uh, you know Mr. Mr. Molenga can't pay, then the others in the group are going to do that. Uh, so that you know that that's a really a useful thing. The other the other thing that's that, that we've seen that works really well is when there is a savings component to it. And some of our some of our loan programs will have a a compulsory saving component. So when you come back in and pay your 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 re, make your repayments, you know. The, the principal plus the interest plus a percentage on top of that that's compulsory savings and that's yours then some will have even have a voluntary savings component to it as well and I tell you it just changes people when when they they they, uh, they start thinking that for the first time in their lives their lives they've got a little bit of security uh, if something goes wrong yeah, a little uh, bit of resilience a bit of resilience there's something to fall back on all right so that's number one in our list of the five best ways to address uh, poverty, microloans and table banking. Number two, and these two often go uh, together in a number of the partnerships that we operate, uh, it is small-scale agriculture. Again, this this is not uh, maybe quite as well-known, quite, quite as popular, um, but we, we operate a program called Foundations for Farming, also known as, as uh, Farming God's Way, uh, Kev, talk to us about the, the principles and how that works and why this is so effective. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of reasons. So it's worthwhile going on to the, the Foundations for Farming website and having a look there at, at some, of the, some of the stuff that's there, some of the stories, um, some of the materials they use. Um, the reason why it's, it's so valuable is that, you know, large parts of Africa especially, but, you know, other parts of the world as well, there's a a lot of land that's not being used or not being used efficiently. Um, just in the last couple of years, we've come across a whole lot of you know those same circumstances in India, for example. One of the things that's happening in India is that you know large families. So you know, years ago, people had had a block of land, and then they've had large families, and so each generation it gets divided and divided and divided, and so now in many cases. Uh, the you know the son gets just a very small piece of land that's, that's that he thinks is is not a viable piece of land to work 
Uh, so he will sell that off to a rich person up the road, and before long, the rich person owns owns the whole the whole state kind of thing, you know, because they buy bought off all these little wee chunks, and so then people are, are disempowered. Um, they lose their land; it's, it, it's gone forever. Um, uh, but but with this uh, foundations for farming program, you know, quite a small piece of land can sustain a family really well. Uh, and there's still enough land out there. I mean, you talk about population explosion and, and, and overcrowding and that. That's that's true. But, but at the same time, there's still a lot of unused land in the world that's that's already been cleared or, or is, is, is viable for agriculture. So Foundations for Farming, where it sits in, and, and Brighthead World has an agricultural director, yep. and uh, he would be very impressed if I could remember the principles of Foundation for Farming. So I'm going to give it a, a go. It's... And this is all related to how you farm. It's uh, on time, yep. at standard, yep. with joy, and and no waste. No waste. Yep. And no that's, waste. That's them. And and they're the that's the definition of faithfulness when it comes to farming. Yeah. I mean, they're life principles too, aren't they? Indeed. Um, you know. Uh, and 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 what you're you're having to overcome in many cases is is a whole lot of um, of um, of agricultural practices that just don't work. Deplete the soil. Um, deplete the soil. And... One of the other things, particularly in Southern Africa, is you know a lot of a lot of um, of older people have have died for for whatever reason. You know, HIV/AIDS took out whole generations of of people, and and so you've you've had a lot of young people growing up without parents. Um, who haven't passed on the skills, um, you know that that type of thing. So, so there's, there's quite a knowledge vacuum around around how to be uh, a successful farmer. And, and see, one of the problems that if you if you were to go to most countries and say to young people, well, use some words to describe a farmer, there's three big ones that will come up. One of them is old, one of them's poor, and one of them's dirty. Now, what young person wants to be <laughs> old, poor, old, and dirty. poor, and dirty? It's just aspirations. Yeah, and so, so you know, when you say, "Oh, what about becoming a farmer?" It's like, no, hey man, no, you know, on the first bicycle out of there, <laughs> um, at a great rate of knots, and so, and so, you know, if you can bring in a, a a whole new way of thinking about agriculture, about farming, and and make it productive, uh, so that that they can, you know, it's worth them staying in the village. Uh, and one of the reasons a lot of rural Africa is, is, um, is, is you know, oh, I don't like to say dying, but is, is, is under under pressure, is because all the young people are leaving and going to the cities. Um, they don't want to stay there. There's no football team. There's no girls. There's no, there's no uh, video shops or, or sounds internet. Sounds like the, or, the West. It sounds like New Zealand. <laughs> but it, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because you know, one of the things this whole coronavirus thing has taught us is, you know, farming's got a, a bit of a bad deal in New Zealand yeah. for its um, carbon footprint and, and its, you know, the, the amount of pollution it puts into the um, waterways particularly. But now we've experienced coronavirus and all of a sudden we realise actually, you know, primary produce in the primary sector is pretty darn important. Well, people have got to eat. Food security mm. and, and resilience in an economy. And it's really no different in the places where we work, is it? That no, it's just the e- scale's a bit different, that's all. And and even, you know, during coronavirus, those that are, um, you know, have to go to a supermarket or more likely a food market have really struggled, where the, those who are growing their own crops have, have 
done relatively well. It builds resilience. It builds that well, hardly been affected in some cases. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the, the the beauty of the of this foundations for farming program is that it. It, it it goes right back to to foundational principles. It starts with a theological foundation, you know, the ones we've been talking about in the past. That God is a farmer. God is a farmer, um, and that um, you know poverty is a result of of broken relationships, and and the good news needs to come in there and and uh, address the mindsets that trap people in poverty. You know, like, like I said the other day, you know, poverty's the granddaughter or grandson of, of, of sin and sinfulness and sinful activity. And so, and so a lot of poverty is, is caused by the ongoing influence of, of, of sin in whatever way. I mean, it, it is 101 ways, and we, we'll probably talk about that at some stage. But, but um, you know, to, to teach people then on the basis of that how to to care for their land, to to improve it from from one crop to the next, to um, you know to, to make compost, to well, that, uh, actually, know, all that, of that kind of stuff. That was really striking. I was with our agricultural director in Myanmar, actually, and you know there for a few days, teaching pastors you know to to farm through the foundations of farming program. First thing that really strikes me is is a good chunk of the most of the first day is all about mindsets it's about the stuff that we talked about in our podcast on what is poverty talked about you know people's relationship with creation and that you know those ideas it doesn't matter what i plant it'll never grow the ground is cursed and and so there's a whole bit on mindsets it says no hang on you, you gotta you gotta address that stuff that um that god is a farmer and that you know when you plant things hey they can grow if you do it properly and with these um uh, these principles in place but then it gets super practical so it is about making mulch and you know there are certain things that you can do to uh, increase your crop yields dramatically and I, and I think it's worth saying that you know some of the the stats that we've seen come out from partners that we've done foundations for farming with is that it's not unusual in the first year to see you know a seven or eightfold Increase in the crops that you can yeah, well, grow from from the same piece of land. Yeah, well, yeah, not not probably in the first year. Um, to be fair, um, it, it may be quite similar or, or slightly improved. But after three or four years, right? Yep, you can. Once you it can, beds in, yeah. Once it beds in, and, and they get the ongoing benefit of increasing the fertility in the soil and and eradicating weeds and you know all all of that kind of stuff and and getting smarter at it as they go along. Um, but again, like I said at the start of the section, go to, go and have a look at the, the, the Foundations for Farming website. It's a program that was developed in Zimbabwe, and um, is you know very uh, appropriate for most of Africa. And, and and we've we've been doing this now for for a number of years, and, and have trained people in, in you know Zimbabwe, Zambia, uh, Botswana, um, Kenya, Uganda, South Sudan, Ethiopia, and uh, and across into parts of Asia as well. So, and would it be fair uh, to say we actually now have no idea how far this has gone through? We've trained trainers who go off and follow familial and village connections and it, it's it's kind of gone viral yeah yeah and you know i mean i'd love to see it going even more viral than that but it has the power to completely transform whole villages i, I was i was in in burundi and and uh a few years ago and, and we'd done a training the the year before and and i was there back there a year later and and two of the guys that were in the in the training program i, I was talking to them and, and they said well they went back to the, to their village. They lived nearby, and and um, 
and uh, a, a pastor, the pastor in there, hadn't been able to come to the seminar, so they told him what they were doing, and he started growing this this crop, and he he put in his uh, beans, it was, and the crop just went mad, went ballistic, and and it it was so big that all the people in the area got so jealous they came down and destroyed his crop because because juju magic, you right. know, there was some some something strange going on here. Um, as a, you know, these sorts of things. It, it, I'm, I'm in a sense saying that because sometimes when you come in with a program like this from the outside, you can actually, like we talked about with dependency, you, you can tip over the the balances. Well, it's and, kind of it's, it's what we would call in in New Zealand tall poppy syndrome. I guess yeah, it should be called yeah. tall bean syndrome. Tall bean syndrome, <laughs> right? And in, in an African context. Yeah. But you know, you've just you've got to go back and do that again and do that again, and then bring people, uh, invite people to come in and learn how he's doing it. And so that that takes time, and and that's that whole you know changing mindsets. And, and these things often fail in the first, you know, first few attempts, not because the project or the ideas are bad. It's because of the way people react to the ideas or or don't apply the ideas or, you know, that, that type of stuff. But this is a, a very powerful uh, tool. It is a great tool. And, what, you know, one of the exciting things about it is, uh, you know, teaching people to farm like this doesn't really require a lot of money. So you can you can, with very little, you can... Uh, get a very wide scope, and that's why we think it is uh, a pretty good idea. And in fact, number two on our list of the five best ways to address poverty. We're going to take a little break, and then we'll come back with the remaining three on our list. We will talk to you soon. It Ain't That Simple Mate is brought to you by Lamai Coffee. Lamai Coffee is the finest quality organic Arabica coffee from the northern hills of Thailand. We at Bright Hope World import the green beans into New Zealand and we roast them to perfection, then sell them to discerning coffee drinkers. We're all volunteers on the team, so all the profits go back into great community projects in Thailand. And that is why we call it the world's best tasting act of kindness. You can order Lamai coffee or find out more at lamai.co.nz. It ain't that simple, mate. Welcome back to It Ain't That Simple, mate, the Bright Hope World podcast where we're talking about uh, poverty and missions and everything related to serving the poorest of the poor around the world. Today we are looking at the five best ways to address poverty uh, as, a, as a positive response to our last podcast, the five worst ways to address poverty. This is far more uplifting and exciting. We've talked about number one, microloans and table banking. Number two, uh, small-scale agriculture and a program we call Foundations for Farming. Look it up on Google. It's an amazing story. That brings us to number three, empowerment of women. Now, Kev, that's a pretty good thing. I don't think anyone is going to dispute that. But what impact does this make on poverty? How does this help? How is this a way to address poverty? You keep asking me these questions that aren't that easy to answer, mate. Well, what I, what I do is I ask you the question, see if you do an adequate job, and then I'll come in with the real answer if it's no good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hmm. Empowering women. Well, you know, if you look at the statistics of the poorest of the poor and, and, and who makes that up, you know, the 
uh, women are, are overrepresented there. The poorest of the poorest of the poor in, in some cases, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And uh, some cultures just uh, are designed to, to create issues for women. I mean, but that, that's a point, and we, you know, we touched on this previously, and it's probably important that we hit it again now. Isn't there a chance as, as we step forward and say, right, you know, you patriarchal, you know, male-dominated cultures, we you know, Europeans are going to come with our cultural imperialism, and we're going to fix you. We're going to help you. You know, your thousands of years of culture. We're going to fix it because you're not given, giving women the right amount of power in their cultures. Is, is that what we're doing here? <laughs> well, no, in a word. At the end of the day, the gospel, and that's what we're talking about as a foundation here, the gospel releases, frees everybody, doesn't matter what gender, uh, race, you know, creed, everybody's released when the, when the gospel penetrates and... And transforms. Now, you know, unfortunately, history hasn't been kind. Uh, even church history hasn't hasn't always represented that. But you know, you don't have to look too far back in in history to see that you know, suffragettes were first of all a Christian organisation. That you know, there's a whole lot of of influence of of Christian faith in in terms of of empowering people. Who, who were disenfranchised? You know, the first unions were uh, were, were Christian organisations. Uh, slavery was, in, in its Western form, was 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 you know addressed by by Wilberforce and his crew as as Christians. And so the the you know the Christian faith does have a history of of empowering people, of releasing people. Probably not enough. Well, definitely not enough. But in its in its best moments does wonderful stuff for people. Uh, unfortunately, there's been too many, you know, not so wonderful moments. So I think, uh, I, you know, I think about what this looks like in, in practice. And, and, and again, you know, coming to this with the understanding that our own cultures are deeply deficient. We, you know, mentioned the other day, a lot of our partners look at how we treat, you know, the elderly and say, Boy, that that is awful. You're shipping these people off the other people that raised you, and that's a fair criticism. And I think we've got to take that on the chin and work on that. By the same token, you know, we look into some other cultures and say, hey, you know, as our brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to draw your attention to the fact that some of the women amongst you are are being poorly treated, and you know, something needs to be done about that. Of course, we're not the doers, are we? I mean, we're you no, know. and that, and that's what you've got to remember is this isn't us coming from New Zealand and visiting a country and saying your culture is crap. You know, it's like, oh, you're doing this, you're doing that. This is a person from within that culture coming to us and saying, hey, this is what's happening to our women. This is what's happening to our disabled. This is what's happening to our people in prison or, or, or whatever you know issue they they are addressing. And saying this is what we want to do about it. This is how we think the gospel applies, and and what the gospel should be doing for these people. Uh, and so we respond to that. And so you know, as I said, women are unfairly and uh, represented in in the, those statistics, the demographic, the poorest of the poor. Uh, so inevitably, one of the uh, one of the more common types of of responses to poverty will be to empower women to do some stuff with them. Uh, 
to set them free. And, and you know, uh, some examples of that are through, you know, are from making um, uh, sanitary pads for for girls so they can, you know, go to school and, and get past their exams and, and, and all that, that type of stuff through to to um, helping women uh, learn to sew and and do a practical uh, skill, and then on the basis of that, you know, start learning, uh, start start earning some money, uh, getting yeah. a job. I think that particularly one, you know, I'm thinking of a partner that we have in India that has done a lot of um, sewing training, sewing centres, and one of the really interesting things is is, is the women get trained and they're able to sew and 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 sell that service, sell things that they sew. Uh, not only is there an economic change, but their place within the family unit changes. You know, suddenly they have power, and and you know they're, they're earners, and and their status in the family yeah, is they, also transformed. Yeah, their their status changes, and and they you know often they're, they're viewed as just being a drain on the family resources. Well, now they're actually contributing, and you know we sometimes say, and we're generalising here, but it's on the basis of of understanding it that that even a very poor sewer. You know, person who's been trained to so can earn around thirty percent of a household income in in many countries. Well, that's that's quite a lot when there may be fifteen people or ten people in a household. So, so they they are given dignity and and then have a place and have more value in the society uh, and in the family. So, there's good things. One one of the other things that that's happened too, and and this is a, a result of. Of some of the loan programs, and most of our loan programs are with women, um, is that when they can start contributing to family life financially, uh, that results, and I think I mentioned it in an earlier podcast, that results in much less domestic violence. Um, because again, the husband starts to respect them because they start to see that they have some, you know, benefit other than bearing children and cooking meals. Um, and so their value. Uh, goes up and and then along with that goes goes dignity and uh you know a whole lot of other they just start feeling better about themselves and and the great thing about about this is that you know when women get together and they start talking about you know they start learning to sew together they start um uh, meeting in, in little groups to talk about their loans and all that it's, it's just a, it's a very community focused just they, they just uh yeah, it goes off. It's it's a it's a great environment to be in, and just you know sitting back and watching. They they just love it. To being just having a sense of of value of worth, uh, which is what we talked about. It's one of the things that poverty does. Just rips that out of people. Well, I like it as well. You know, I went to the graduation ceremony for a um, a sewing class in Pakistan, where the women had learned to sew, and and as part of it, we funded uh, sewing machines for those that. You know, graduated and had, you know proven their faithfulness in it, and then you're essentially sending an you know not to dehumanise, but you're sending an economic unit out that is then sustaining. So they they can now do that stuff, support their family. We don't need to be involved anymore, at least in an economic sense. And again, not to oversimplify, they kind of they're good to go. Yeah, yeah. For two hundred to two hundred and fifty dollars, you can um, you can yeah set a person free yeah in that sense um and it's that's deeply uh, life-changing in terms of the way they think about themselves and and uh and what they are able to contribute well one of the things we've noticed which i guess is the the downside of this and when you come into like real patriarchal societies often you you can 
you can end up with uh, people you know, learning a skill, but then you know, they get married and their family won't let them use that skill. And, and so, and so when, you're, when you're empowering the women, you actually have to be talking to the men as well. Um, uh, otherwise, you can just cause frustration. So you do need to create a bit of a context in some cases um, so they do have some opportunity once they've been trained. I think it's also important as well that, you know, where the, the work is with the women and where the, it's economic empowerment of the women, the, the women will, in many cultures, then make sure the kids get educated, the kids get fed. Sometimes we men are not so good at that. <laughs> yeah, and in some cultures, the men don't, you know, the, the men don't see any, any need to be contributing to family e- economics. Um, that's the wife's job. Um, and so you can, if you can empower a woman... Um, help her earn a, earn a living, then the kids get educated. Um, yeah, so and that, and that has an impact. That has an impact on the next generation, and 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 you've then got a an opportunity to talk to talk to the husband. Well, not us, but the, the partners can then have that dialogue. Okay, so that is number three. Empowerment of women is a really important uh, way to uh, address poverty, and we highly recommend it. Uh, number four in our list, we've got two to go. Number four is job creation. Now, this should be pretty intuitive that, um, you know, doing things that enable people in struggling economies to have a job is pretty important. But we're, there's a nuance in this, isn't there, Kev? So, you know, we might be doing micro um, micro business sort of work, but this is, this is a, a slightly different scale, isn't it? This is about supporting people who can create a small business that will employ multiple people. Yep. And you know, if, if I had to pick one of these as the number one most effective way of of getting people out of out of uh, poverty, this would probably have to be right up there. I mean it's in our top five obviously, but I'd probably shift it to number one or two. Um and especially when it's in relationship to, with some of these other ones, I, I can remember in Kenya one of the one of the the standout stories was we had we had a, a, a micro loan program going that was kind of a revolving fund really, and I went along to interview some of the people that were were involved in it, and no, I'll tell two stories from this because they just. They just—I still remember them. One was a, a young guy who had had to drop out of school because his uh, his mother went mad um, and his father abandoned the family, and he was he was the oldest. So as a fourteen-year-old, he found himself on the streets, kind of eking out a living, looking after his siblings. So four of them, I think. Anyway, he got somebody actually paid the deposit for him to join this loan program, and and he got in there on the. On the you know by the grace of somebody else and and he he started uh, saving and and then he I came along about a year later and, and he took me down to his business and he had this little kiosk where he was selling uh, telephone accessories and, and all sorts of stuff it was all painted up bright you know safari com uh, green and uh, he was so proud showing me through all the stuff and all the stock he had in there and then he started to tell me a story he'd gone back to school. He'd put all of the, his other siblings through school. He was now about 22. Put all of his siblings through school. And his mother had just come back into the family and had been healed of, uh, of her mental illness. And he was now looking after her. And you should have seen the smile on that guy's face. I bet. Yeah, it was just, ah, it was, it was brilliant. 
The other one was a lady got a loan. She was a school teacher. Uh, she got a loan from the revolving fund, um, and she had a piece of land out in the in the rural area, and she'd started a farm out there. And now she was employing four people, you know, and she was just about to take out another loan to buy a small vehicle so she could transport the stuff that she was doing out there back into the city and get a better price for it and stuff. And it was like, yeah, okay, that's cool. <laughs> you know, you help one person, and there's five families potentially that are that are now economically self-sustaining. It's just, it's just the best way if, if you can do it. So, it, it, you know, look, if, if this is the way that, um, you know, we can have a, an impact and create all these jobs, should we be then focusing on creating a whole bunch of really big businesses? Well, I mean, why not just do that? Not the big ones. <laughs> they get a little bit too complicated. Um, but there's, certain, there's certainly a, a decent argument for setting up a number of medium-scale, medium-sized businesses that employ, you know, six, eight, ten people, something like that. I think that's the level that, that this works best at. Because um, we, don't, we don't want to attract government attention in some of these places, do we? And, and that's a real issue. Um, but anyway, we have a funny story, I and mean, you, 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 you might have to have to wipe a bit of egg off your face on this one, Fraser. Remember uh, Friends Fashion Centre in Pakistan? Oh, yes. The guys there wanted to help, wanted some help to set up this this business making jeans, and so we got all the figures and we looked at it and we thought, nah, no, this isn't really okay. We'll lend them some money. So we lent them some money. We went back and visited. They started. They had about fifty guys employed making jeans, and yeah, we, none of the numbers made sense at all. No, no. And so we went back and they wanted some more loans, and they didn't. Um, we didn't lend it to them, and. Uh, and then after about three months, Fraser sort of says to me, oh, that business is bro- you know, has to be broke now. Well, I went back last year, this is 10 years later, and it's still operating. <laughs> the learning from that is that uh, I think uh, uh, economics and, and finances in Pakistan are very different from the Yeah, I, I, that, that is voodoo. I, I don't know how they made that work, but you know that, that's an extraordinary thing, isn't it, that, that – you know, we can sort of jump in and sort of say, right, we need to do this and this and this. But the, the people that we're dealing with are extraordinarily resourceful. I mean, there's just no way that thing should should still be standing. And yet it's it's, it's not only standing, it's, it's thriving. Man, they're, they're, they're employing us. It's slightly smaller than it was. They're employing about 30 people now. But they're making, on a bad month, about 1,000 US dollars a month profit that's going into ministry. It was like, wow, okay. You know, that's just twelve thousand bucks a year minimum. Yeah, um, I, I can say I'm very happy to be wrong on that one. Okay, I'll get my uh, flannel out and wipe your face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Slip, it, slip. It, would, it would be far <laughs> from the only one, Kev. <laughs> so yeah, so you know, small businesses that can uh, employ a lot of people, and and this is as well. You know, in our ministry, a lot of us are entrepreneurs. A lot of our donors are entrepreneurs. A lot of our partners are entrepreneurs, and our partners themselves are looking for entrepreneurial people to invest in. You know, we've got a partner in Nepal who is just extraordinarily good at this. We can, we can barely give the guy money. money. He, yeah, he's, yeah. he's got so many things just, happening yeah. in so many circles, and he's constantly on the lookout for entrepreneurs. We've, we've, we're just doing two more with him that form these great businesses that can grow and support a family, but then they can employ other people and support more families. It's a great model. Yeah, and that that one in Pakistan. I mean, you know, they're employing thirty something people. Yeah, they're all Christian people that would struggle to get a job in, in a in a in a country like Pakistan. They'd certainly be at the back of the line. Um, but here they are. You know, it's it's 
That's pretty cool. Okay, and and you know, one, one point if if someone was thinking of investing in this, you, you might think, but I don't have any experience or expertise in business. Well, I can tell you, I have a lot, and I got it hopelessly wrong. So <laughs> maybe, maybe that kind of skill and experience is uh, overrated. Maybe maybe faith is more important than the ability to read a spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah, well, probably a bit of both, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, R- relational skill is important. Okay, so that was number four job. Uh, creation and number one microloans and uh, table banking number two small-scale agriculture number three empowerment of women number four job creation and then the very last vocational training now that seems a little out of left field what, what do we mean by that Kev? why why is it why is it valuable yeah it, it, it's actually really valuable because you know one of the problems that we observe in a, in a lot of countries is you know, kids go to school usually around about six in many countries. You know, even from grade one, they have to pass an exam to get to grade two, or even to get out of kindergarten, they have to pass an exam. Uh, and so, often, you know, they're just coming out the end of secondary school in their in their early twenties, and then there's no jobs for them. It's like, what's with that? You know, it's like they've spent fourteen or fifteen years in education and uh, at great expense to their families. And then they don't have any potential to earn anything. So, so you know, not everybody needs to go to university. Not everybody needs to. And in a lot of these countries, it's just a total waste of time and money. If you're thinking about about getting a job, to to spend another three year or four years at university, there's there's nothing much at the end of that either. And so, and so, equipping and empowering people, you know, with life skills and vocational skills, uh, is is really important uh, part of the part of the whole solution. To clarify what we mean by vocational training, I mean what what are what are some of the vocations that you know that we're seeing people get trained into? What are the, what are the kind of skill sets that are quite valuable in some of these? Yeah, contexts? there's there's quite a wide range. I mean, in in, in one of the um, partnerships in in uh, in Peru, they're doing um, electrical uh, auto electri- electrical training. So people are, you know learn how to do, how to do that. Uh, go to Egypt, they're learning how to fix um, mobile phones, uh, air conditioners. Um, uh, women are learning uh, beauty and hair hairdressing. Uh, carpentry is quite a big one for for guys. Just next year, looking at start or later this year, starting a, a carpentry workshop in, in in the Congo in one place. Um, bicycle you know, repair, uh, motorcycle repair. We've done a few where it's uh, beauty, hair and beauty, right? Yeah, that, that's one you were signing up for, wasn't it? I I would be happy to be a volunteer tutor for that. You could be the model. <laughs> well, they they could practice doing my makeup. I'd be up for that. <laughs> yeah, so it's 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 preparing people with practical stuff, and and, and you know it's it's huge value for money from a from a training point of view because you know most of the uh, most of these courses are shorter courses they're, they're you know six to nine months um, as opposed to three or four years um, usually they're set up by people who know what they're doing they're practitioners they're not just theorists um, and we have a number of our partners who have set up vocational training as as their ministry their way to engage their community um, uh, and they're very powerful because you, know, you imagine you get you know women coming along to to, to learn beauty and, and makeup and that. I mean, it's just a riot. 
us guys are not allowed to go in there because, you know, sometimes these will be Muslim women that are learning this and they've had to take their head coverings off and that. So we're not allowed into the room, but you can certainly hear plenty of uh, plenty of fun and games going on in there. But they, they build such close friendships and um, and, and then, you know, a, a number of those people come to come to faith in the process because they – uh, they meet real Christians, ordinary Christians, people who who love them and care for them, and and, and want to serve them and have the best intentions for them. Um, and then you know you do that, you do that vocational training, and then if, you know if you can follow behind that with a loan program to help some of these people set up their own little businesses, get started, and get started, and and buy their first set of tools or, or whatever. It's just, yeah, it's a very powerful combination. And the selection of what people do is pretty important, isn't it? I mean, you know, I, I think it's one of the things that often strikes people when they go to Africa is you'll be driving along a highway and you'll see a stand selling pineapples next to 15 other stands selling pineapples. And you sort of, you know, we, we instantly have a sort of market perspective on this and think, well, that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. To, to certain cultural mindsets, it's like, well, if... That person selling pineapples, I'll sell pineapples as well because I don't want to be different. I'll, I'll just do what everyone else is doing. Whereas, you know, we might come in and say, right, where, where is the gaps in the market and get that horribly wrong. So, I'll sell knives to cut up pineapples. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> well, maybe that's a good opportunity. But, you know, having that, again, the partner on the ground that can can really look to the market and say, look, here, here I think are safe bets is important because – you know, you kind of can't afford to get it wrong. Yeah, it, it, the way business is done in a lot of these places is so different that, you know, it's not appropriate for us to even help in terms of trying to set some of that stuff up. Um, but there are some universal principles, as with the Foundations for Farming, that that, that people can learn. In fact, we're, we're at the point of, of, you know, launching a bit of a... a uh, a training program based around the foundations for farming model on on economics. How, how does how does money work and, and and that kind of stuff. And we were hoping to trial it earlier this year, but it, it didn't work um, because of COVID. But but you know we'll we'll have some stuff. It's really learnings from from observation and and a lot of table banking because um, we think that's a really powerful foundational kind of thing to be doing. Well, okay, there you have it. That's the uh, the latest from Pride Hope World, at least, on, on the five best ways to address poverty. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you think we've missed anything? Uh, if you have any thoughts, feedback, or questions, uh, please do send us an email to podcast at brighthopeworld.com. For more information about some of the partnerships we have, and including some of the ones that we've talked about uh, today, uh, go to our website, brighthopeworld.com. You can look up specifically partnerships that are involved in some of these areas that are in agricultural development, that are in microloans. Uh, read some of the reports and the stories about uh, what our partners are doing to make a real difference in poverty. I, th- I think you'll find that there's some really exciting things uh, happening and we're always posting new information. Kev, any final thoughts before we go? I mean, it would be really tough to live your whole life without having a decent job or to have any, the dignity that comes from earning money for yourself and empowering, uh, upskilling, uh, resourcing people into into um, you know employment and career, not just a job, is a big part of the deal here. Um, it's transformative. That's transformative. It's not just economically, but emotionally, relationally, uh, their dignity all changes. So yeah, that's that's just really, really a big, a big deal for us. All right. 
I'm Fraser Scott here with uh, Kevin Honore. You have been listening to It Ain't That Simple, Mate, the Bright Hope World podcast. Next time, we are going to be talking about the role of the church and poverty. Very interesting subject. Please do join us again. But for now, thanks for joining us, and we will see you next time.